Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. <laughs> my dad is my hero. I'll always be there to take your call. And you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. Today's guest helps people get creative in their thinking, decisions, and actions so that they can innovate. She's a coach, the host of the Innovative Mindset podcast, author of Speak From Within. Here's a quote I found on her Facebook. For us to look in opposite directions so much that we see each other, and in our eyes, ourselves, is proof that we are not alone. Isolde Trachtenberg, welcome. Tell me some interviews where you feel like you've pushed yourself. One of them was Captain Paul Watson, who is he's the co-founder of Greenpeace, and he is the founder of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, and they go out and do direct action on the high seas to stop whalers and to stop people, you know, killing dolphins, and they just do amazing work. And it was hard for me because I kept wanting to cry. You know, he's, he's a very take-no-prisoners kind of guy, and he's very intense. There's a song called The Last of the Great Whales, which is sung from the perspective, I'm going to start crying just even talking about it, sung from the perspective of the last great whale, the last blue whale. And he is singing and he is saying, I'm swimming with my mate and suddenly a harpoon gun comes and, you know, gets her and they, they pull her out of the water and she's pregnant with our baby. And I'm under the water and I'm trying so hard not to take a breath. And I'm the last of the great whales and I'm crying and I'm, I'm actually crying already. And then the last verse is he has to go up and take a breath and they get him too and they harpoon him and, and kill the last of the great whales. And it's this song and I can't even talk about about it without starting to weep. And so talking to a man who is actually doing the work to stop whaling, to stop these ships from going and killing these incredible beings was just, it was monumental for me. It really pushed me in places I didn't think that I could go. So play, people like that, people like Wendy Hapgood, who's the co-director of the Wild Tomorrow Fund, also pushed me. Tom Peters, who is a leadership guru, he wrote sort of the best-selling book on business of all time. It's called In Search of Excellence. And he also, he pushes me because he's so smart, so such a brilliant man and looking at how we manage ourselves and how we manage the people who work with us in some really unique ways back when he started doing this in the 70s and 80s. So you have to stay on your toes in order to talk to him because he'll blow right by you if you don't. So people like that also are challenging, but in a really, everybody, I'm very lucky in that everybody I've ever talked to has been incredible as far as giving of their wisdom and, and their guidance. And I've had some amazing, like a hip hop artist who's grand Grammy Award winner and other Grammy Award winners, people who are in the acting field and, and people who are Broadway producers who are Tony winners and Grammy winners. And, and they are also really willing to share how they do what they do. What What is, the, I mean, my podcast is called The Innovative Mindset. So they're willing to share what their mindset is so that other people can actually grab some of that information and use it themselves, even if they're never going to be a Grammy Award winning <laughs> producer or something like that. So there's a lot of stuff that we can do and really, really make a difference just by the interviews we do and the way we approach them. And a lot of it is listening too. Like, are you listening? Are you paying attention to what the person's actually saying so that you can then have a really in-depth conversation? Do you know the whale song? I do, but I cannot sing it. No? No, I will cry. I will cry, 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 cry. That's the whole point is I, I don't even think I could get through the, I am the last of the great whales and I am dying. And it's just this, oh, see, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. I can't, I cannot sing that song. I can sing pretty much any other song in the world that I know, but I cannot sing that one. I cannot do it. I, I can't get through it. 
Wow, you have a beautiful voice, though. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell my mom you said that. <laughs> and I She'll know that you can sing in 20 languages. Yes, wow. yeah, it's a lot of fun. The thing is, English is actually not my first language. It's my fourth language. So I learned how to learn languages when I was very young during my parent, my family. I'm an immigrant and my family immigrated and it took a year. And so we lived in four different countries during that time. So my first language is Russian, actually, because I was born in a country called Moldova, which right now is getting pressed because it's right to the south of Ukraine. So everything that's going on, it's it's a country that's getting some attention now. And then right after that, we moved to Israel and lived there for months. And I lived in a war zone during the Yom Kippur War. So that was really a challenging time. And then we moved to Italy and lived there for a while. And so as we moved to all these countries, I picked up the languages and then we got here. By then, I was sort of a, an old hand at picking up languages. So I picked up English within a couple of months. And then, right. and how old you know, were you? You were like six or something when you started speaking English? I was seven. I was six when we left the Soviet Union, but it took about a year to do that. And so during that time, I turned seven. Wow. I think, though, that there are people that have an easier time learning languages. Like I have a cousin that can speak seven. Mm, like, yeah, I think probably you're right. And but also, you know, when I learned them, I was young. And when you're young, when you're six, five years old, you're sponge. So you can pick things up incredibly quickly. I don't know that I could learn a language as fast now, but getting the facility to pick up languages is what let me learn how to sing. I can sing in Japanese and I can sing in Italian and I can sing in French and I can sing in Hebrew and I can sing in Koza. I can sing in lots of different languages in part because I got a really good base and foundation on how to learn languages and accents when I was very young. When did you start studying formally? Formally, never. I was in choirs and that was really it. I don't have any specifically formal singing training. I think I took a voice class in college once, but it was quite frankly, for the University of Michigan, you would think they would have a better voice class, but it was a voice class for non-music majors. And so it was not a, because I wasn't a music major, I was an English major, and I wasn't particularly thrilled with the teacher. So I sort of went off and taught, a lot of it was taught myself, but I also was very lucky. My high school choir director, Mary Alice Powell, I'll, I'll give her a shout out. I base all of my teaching on the way she teaches and whatever I'm teaching, I teach the way she taught. She was incredible. She had a gift of, of meeting you where you were, but also really opening up vistas for you that you did not even think were possible for yourself. So so I, that's what I try to do for every client, every coaching client, every time I do a workshop, doesn't matter what, I try to do the same thing. And it's about putting yourself in the moment of the music, right? It's as if you are doing this song for the very first time and no one else has ever done it before, right? So it's your interpretation from your heart. And that is, a, it's the gift that she gave me to start thinking about singing and music and playing. I play violin, I play guitar, playing those things as if I am the first interpreter because then it really gets to be my interpretation and I'm not just copying someone else. Did you love music as a child? I loved it. Loved it, loved it. My mother's a singer. This is anecdotal. I don't I don't remember this, but apparently when she used to sing with me before I was verbal, I didn't even speak yet, nine, ten months old, I would la 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 with her. And then by the time I was one or two, apparently I was la la lying in harmony. So we sang together a lot. My mom is an incredible singer. She sings folk songs from that part, from the Eastern Europe, from that part of the world. So she would sing. And I would sing with her. And so whenever they had parties or anything like that, they'd go, Ida, you should sing. And then, of course, I'd join her. And, and so we would sing in two-part harmony and entertain everybody from the time I was a little kid, from, you know, four years old. And so all my life I've been singing and I started playing violin at five. So it's just been such a huge, huge part of my life, most of my life. That's so beautiful. Do you remember, like, any songs that she would sing to you when you were little? Sure. Sure. I love those kind of songs. <laughs> uh, you're looking at me expectantly. <laughs> Come wanna... on, give me some. <laughs> okay. In Russian, you mean? or? Yeah, that would be amazing. Okay, sure. This is a song called Cinderella. This is a song that every mother sings to her little girl as she's growing up. And it's a song about Cinderella. And Cinderella is talking to a friend and she says, I had this amazing dream last night. I dreamt that a handsome prince came on a silver horse and he took me to this incredible ball and artists painted my picture and musicians 
wrote symphonies for me and I danced and I twirled like a top and I twirled so much that I lost one of my glass slippers. And she says, but you know what's amazing is that when I woke up this morning, there was a pair of glass slippers on my windowsill and that's the song. So here's how it goes. I'll sing you just the, the first verse. Хоть поверьте, хоть проверьте, сон вчера приснился мне, будто принц со мной приехал на серебряном коне, и встречали нас танцоры, барабанщик и трубач, сорок восемь дирижеров, и один с его скрипач, парарурам, парарурам, парабампам, парарурам. Oh my gosh, that's so good. Wow. Thank so you. that's kind of like the little harmony thing that you could do. Did she sing that one with you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, she sang it. And then I would sing harmonies on the pararuram. You know, so instead of going, I'd go, so I'd sing the harmonies and, and play around while she sang the melody. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. You know, it's so cute. So with my kids too, like, I feel like from very young ages, like if I sang a note that they could almost harmonize with me, we're like, you awesome. feel it. You know how you can feel if they're singing, mm. like, I don't know if it's like a perfect third or exactly, you know, what you would call that, but it vibrates when you're like mm -hmm. in harmony. It's so much fun and it, it, it'll bring you together, but also it gives you a common heart language. That's the way I look at singing together. You know, it gives you there. There are cultures all over the world that are singing cultures. I come from a singing culture where I've traveled a lot in Africa and there are so many cultures that are that's what they do for entertainment, for sort of before they sing, before they have meetings, for example, like village meetings, they will all sing together. There's a wonderful chant called Oh Mama Bakudala, and it's about women. And it basically, the women, the grandmothers, the, the words are something along the lines of the grandmothers used to pray to make everything good happen essentially so and it's called oh mama bakudala and when you sing it you sing it as a hello sort of thing you know when you're having these big meetings and then then you have the meeting and then you sing another song called kwaheri which is goodbye so they have music plays a huge role in many cultures lots and lots of cultures have singing as part of the way the community comes together and stays together what language is that the Oma Babakudala is Nkhoza. It's a, it's a... Give me a little of that too. Whoa, do you know that? <laughs> Sure, sure. I can sing Oma Bakudala. Oh, Mama Bakudala Babetandaza. Oh, Mama Bakudala Babetandaza. 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 That's Oma Babakudala. And you wow. sing it in big time harmony. So there's, and then somebody else would come in on a lower and a higher. And all of a sudden there's like this many harmonies going. It's really incredible. Oh my God. I feel like that really takes you to another place. Like I can it, almost picture being there. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's something, there's something so powerful about it. And, and it's really, it's talking about the, the heart strength and the spirit strength of women, which I think is wonderful. Oh my God. When did you get to travel to that location? I used to work for NASA many moons ago. I was an environmental educator for NASA and we would travel to do workshops all over the world for this program called the GLOBE program, which was, the, it's called, it's GLOBE stands for Global Learning and Observations to Benefit the Environment. And more than a hundred countries participate. It's a joint NASA NSF NOAA program, but the Department of Treasury signs up other countries who want to be part of the program. And what it is, is it's a partnership between scientists, students, and teachers where the scientists come up with protocols like experiments that they really need done but quite frankly they're not going to be able to get to every part of the earth to do some of these experiments like if you want to do soil quality experiments or let's say water ph 
or temperature, even surface temperature. If you want to do surface temperature, you're not going to get to every part of the world to measure surface temperature. Now, we have satellites that go around and do it, but we don't have the ability for scientists to go. So they basically deputized students to do it. And so what happens is students go and they do these protocols. Everybody does them consistently a certain way. And then they take the data. Let's say you're, you're today we're going to look at clouds and you go out at local solar noon and you look at what the clouds are in the sky. You might see cumulus clouds, you might see stratus clouds, whatever you do, see, you mark it down. And then you go inside, you enter that data into the website. The data then is a huge data set. It's been going on since 1994 of students taking these measurements for clouds you do that every day you don't do everything else every day some are weekly some are you just do them once etc etc but there's this huge data set from all over the world because this is back before cell phones they would have gps units and the gps units would tell them exactly where they were so here's what can happen once the data are in that data set then anybody in the world it's not just the scientists but anybody in the world can use that data set to do research so if you wanted to do research on the cloud patterns in lesotho which is right where near where i was in in johannesburg in south africa where i learned om Bakudala, if you wanted to do a long-term study and that part of the world south africa is very active in this program so you could go what has south africa taken measurements on i see they've taken these cloud measurements over this time at this specific location i can now I'll look at that over the last 20 years and see what the cloud patterns have been and I can do research on that. And I don't have to be a scientist. I can be a, a private individual. I can be a third grader. I can be anybody if I want to use that data for research. So it's an incredible program because it brings people together, not just for the science, because one of the things that can happen is the cultures. You learn about each other's cultures. They have these conferences where students from different parts of the world get together because they present their research for example. But also, and this is something I did when I worked with the schools, because I would go and train the, the teachers and the scientists and the, and, and the students themselves how to do these. I, I was part of the team that did that and got to travel all over the world, which was super cool. But the thing is that what you can do is I want to do a comparison study. If I live in South Africa and I want to see what somewhere like Topeka, Kansas, what their difference is, right? If we looked at clouds there and we looked at clouds where we are, what would the differences be? What would it be, you know, how would it be the same? What about temperature? Well, in South Africa, their winter is the summer in the Northern hemisphere, right? So what are the temperatures gonna look like? How are they going to be different? Students themselves can do that research and they can partner up and work together to take the data they want. And while they're doing that, they learn about each other's culture and it makes the world, I think, so much a better place when we're more familiar with one another, when we know each other more, when we're curious about each other, and when we become friends with people who are living thousands of miles away. Tell me about some of the friends that you made. This is super fun. So I speak Russian, but we were doing a training in Kyrgyz Republic, but back then it was called Kyrgyzstan. And they gave me a, an interpreter. And it was, <laughs> Max is great. They were all 18, 19 years old, young, young sort of young people. Now I wasn't that much older than than he was at that point but but it was still very interesting because they gave us an, and and I said well Max I don't know exactly what you're going to do because I already speak Russian and he said no well let me do my job so I'm going to translate but there were times when I would lapse into Russian and he would go uh, okay and then he'd have to translate my Russian into English <laughs> and then he got really confused and at one point he did a great job of translating my Russian into Russian we lost a certain amount of touch we became very close over that 10 days you know he, he felt like like my little brother but then on Facebook we found each other again and he's this you know he's a family man he's got children now and I knew him when he was an 18 year old kid so it was just wonderful to have that kind of of experience of being able to see him grow into this wonderful adult who's passing on incredible wisdom to his own kids. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm very blessed. I have friends who I met the Greek country coordinator, Nectarias, so she's fabulous. And she does incredible work in Greece to do the same kind of thing. 
and she's a dog lover. So I know that about her. My, I have my friend Marta who works in, in Argentina. Also, I met there. And in fact, singing played a role. They speak Spanish. They speak English too. But I was like, oh, I'm going to get to practice my Spanish. This is wonderful. So I spoke with them in Spanish as much as I possibly could. And one night I had brought my guitar with me to this one training we were at. It was actually here in, in the States. And I was in the USA doing this training and I brought my guitar. I thought, okay, because I drove. Okay. So I went outside and I was sitting in this in the balmy air. It was in Florida. And I was sitting outside in the balmy air and I was playing my guitar. And Marta and my friend Claudia came and they said, oh, play us something in Spanish. And I went, okay. So I played something in Spanish and they and then they started choosing languages for me to sing in. Now I want you to play something in French. Now I want you to, what other languages do you sing in? And so they tested every language I could possibly sing. And I can't play in all of those because I don't necessarily know the guitar parts to the songs, but I can sing in a lot of them. So I, I exhausted all of my languages that night trying to sing in all of them. And after a while I had to say, okay, now I'm going to have to repeat songs because I don't know any other languages. But they were they're still delightful and wonderful friends of mine that and we met in 2000. Where was like your favorite place or places that you've traveled? Three places immediately come to mind. Greece. I love Greece. Ireland and Cuba. Tell me about Greece. Greece, we've been to, my husband and I've been to twice. We went on our honeymoon and we also went once a long time ago. Greece, I am a ginormous mythology dork. So I love, I love, I love mythology and I have always wanted to visit Greece and the tropical islands and going to Crete. And we went to the Palace of Knossos where I got to see where this incredible matriarchal culture thrived thousands of years ago. And we went to the Parthenon and the Acropolis and my husband's sister is married to a Greek man. And so we visited them a little bit. And then they're on an island called Ikaria, which is about a hundred miles Southwest of Turkey. And if you go down to the Southwest sort of part of the island where there's this horseshoe shaped inlet, I guess is the best way of saying it. And you have to climb down the cliff and there is a relatively well-preserved temple to the goddess Artemis right there, you know, and for the people who live there, it's just part of the local culture. And for me, it would blew my mind. Ah, right there. I'm right at, you know, people came here thousands of years ago to honor the goddess Artemis. And when the sun sets, it it sets right sort of in that because the way the horseshoe is and it faces sort of southwest you get this incredible sunset right on the temple it was it was mind-boggling i loved it sitting in the place at the parthenon where they had all of those oratories people you know the theater's still there you could stand where they stood sophocles and aristotle and socrates and they walked those roads they stood on that theater stage it's incredible to me that that is you can just go there (laughs) it blows my mind Yeah, that's really cool. Also, during the pandemic or over the last month or so, you've been daily creating art digitally. Talk about that. So what I do with my work life is I go into companies and organizations and I teach them how to spark their innovative drive, right? So that, to me, part of that is being creative. And I started last September. I decided to start and see if I could do creativity first thing in the morning and what that would do to my mind, to my brain, to my inspiration and my ingenuity. So when I wake up first thing in the morning, I paint digitally a painting of something, of something I dreamt about or something I've been thinking about. The big thing about it is that I'm not a painter. It's not what I do. Therefore, I can approach it with beginner's mind. That was one of the things that was really important to me because if I were to go, I'm going to play music every day. Well, music, as much as I love it, is also work because I'm a performer. I can go be practicing for gigs. But I also have these expectations of myself that I'm going to be good at it, that, I, that I'm required to be good at it because I'm a professional, right? Well, I wanted to do something that I have no skill in at all to see what it would do to me, to my confidence, to my ingenuity, to my ability to be creative, to try to do something that I had no skills in and just see if what I envision is what I can create, whether or not it would speak to anybody because art is meant to be shared as far as I'm concerned. You can 
sit in your room and do that and be perfectly satisfied. Absolutely. I have no problem with that. For me, in my life, I think when art and music and creativity, writing, anything are shared, we are all enriched by the experience. So as I'm creating these, I'm putting them up on my Facebook page every morning to sort of go, this is today's art piece. This is what I did today. This is what I did today. Some people, you know, there are people who are sort of following it along and, and I think enjoying it. And, and what's interesting is that I had, <laughs> I had a professional artist contact me. He messaged me and he said, I cannot be silent any longer. There's so much wrong with what you're doing. I need to give you critique. And I had to sort of say, thank you so much, but I didn't ask for critique, right? You have to know for yourself, do you want feedback? I started and run a writer's group. And one of the things every group I ever facilitate, I say to them, you have to know what kind of feedback you want. Be honest with yourself and say, you know what? All I want right now is supportive feedback. Tell everybody, I just want supportive feedback. I don't need anybody to tell me anything that's going to be criticism right now. I'm not ready for that. But when I am ready, then I'm going to be ready for critique. And I want, you know, so I didn't ask for feedback on these digital paintings. I just put them out there. And yet this guy <laughs> really felt like he needed to let me know the number of things that were wrong with what I was doing. And I said, I appreciate that you are so excited to to do this and to help me, but that's not what I'm trying to do here. That's, you know, I know very firmly what I'm doing, which is I'm operating from beginner's mind. And if I make mistakes, so be it. That's not the point of the project. So interestingly, he just couldn't help himself. It was so important to him that I understand, you know, what bad technique I was using. So I kind of had to go, it's okay. I'm not trying to be a professional artist. But here's something that's interesting, though. I've sold a bunch of them. I've sold a bunch of my paintings. I know people Good have contacted you. me. Thank you. Yeah, I was surprised. It was because it's not my intent, but I've had a bunch of people contact me and go, you know, that one you did last Thursday, I want a print of that. Okay, <laughs> sure. But it was unexpected. It was not what I was going for at all. I just wanted to see what I could create and also to hold myself accountable. And that's why I post them is this is my accountability. I also love that you learned boundaries from it and that you enforced them. I love that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and again, it's about knowing yourself first, right? People will walk all over our boundaries if we don't know ourselves and if we don't know what our boundaries are. So it was very, it was very clear to me that he needed to say it, but it was also very clear to me that I didn't need to hear it. Yeah. Tell me about your three C's method that you've developed. Ah, the three C's. I love the three C's. Thank you for asking about that. So to me, the most important thing is that we have a lot of problems and we need creative solutions. That's the way I look at all of it is that it's all about solving these huge problems in innovative ways because the old ways just don't seem to be working. So to me, what we need to do is we need to innovate, but we need to do it ethically. Like Try to do things better, but do it for the right reasons. And the three C's are a pathway to that, if you will. They allow that. The first C is creativity. It allows us, if we're creative, and that's one of the reasons I'm doing this big creativity project is hone that more. It allows us to have sparks of brilliance, sparks of inspiration, and also expression. The way I look at it is this. What is the very first thing you do when you're born? Cry. Ah, before you cry, what is the first thing you do? Breathe. Breathe. Exactly. You take a breath in and then you cry, right? But that first breath is the moment of coming to life. And one of the things that creativity can do for us is the same thing. If we take a breath and then the cry, the self-expression is the very second thing we do, right? So, it goes right back to the literally the first thing you do. It goes right back to our birth. Well, creativity is the same way. If you open yourself up to inspiration by taking a breath, then once inspiration hits, you have the confidence to express it in some creative way. That to me is the heart of creativity. It's the heart of creativity. And so what I wanna do when I work with companies and when I work with my clients is to help everyone there also get into the heart of their creativity by learning some mindfulness techniques, really getting into that breath space because it's the very first thing you do when you're born, and then self-expression. You don't have to be a singer. You don't have to be a poet. You don't have to be a, a dancer. You can be something, though. We all have something that we 
did when we were children, that we did for fun. You might have built forts. You might have made up tall tales. You might have banged wooden spoons on pots. Those are the seeds of the kind of creativity you might be best suited for now because you naturally gravitated towards banging on pots. Maybe it's not drums. But it could be something else that is your perhaps musical outlet, right? Your creative outlet. So creativity to me goes back to those seeds from when we were kids and we find them together. And then that becomes the pathway to this more ingenuity filled way of looking at things, right? You actually want to innovate. You actually want to get curious about things. And then you look at them through that creative mindset, that innovative mindset. And the next thing is compassion and compassion ties in and compassion is all about wanting to help. It's wanting to solve problems. And I tell, I tell everybody I work with, if you work for anybody, if you have your own business, it doesn't matter. We are all in the business of solving other people's problems. That's it. But in order to realize that there are problems to be solved, you need to have awareness and you need to have compassion. You need to feel like, oh, I want to help solve these problems. We do that by getting mindful, getting to that place where we open our awareness to see what the problems might be. Because we get blinders on, you know, we go to this place, we go, I have only these things I need to focus on. And sometimes we miss some, but something here that is really important. So becoming aware, opening ourselves up to mindfulness and compassion is the second part of this. And you can do this as individuals and you can do this as companies. What does the company need to focus on where their compassion can be what they lead with in their neighborhood and their community throughout the company itself? There are ways that we can really show those soft skills that are going to really lead to big changes in success. And then the next thing and the last thing is collaboration. And to me, I'm talking about Africa a lot today. My favorite, 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 favorite saying is if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that's, that's an African saying. And I just, first time I heard it, I went, oh, truism, because it's so true. Like you can go super fast, but then where have you gotten? If you want the long haul, if you want comrades, compatriots on the long haul, that's collaboration, that's working together. And so, again, when I work with companies and organizations, I help them develop teams that aren't just all the engineers sit together, right? I like to develop teams where people of different strengths get to highlight their strengths. And that means that you might have the boss working with an intern who's also working with an HR person who's also working with one of the engineers. And they all work together to come up with these solutions because I guarantee you the engineer is not going to think of the things that the intern will. And the intern is not going to think of the things that the HR person will. And, and the, the CEO might not think of the things any of those people will because the CEO, they think big picture. The intern, details. So looking at it from that perspective, when we find these teams that can really collaborate together, that's when we have all sorts of magic. There's a wonderful book called The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. And he talks about, the whole point of the book is he looked at different successful teams. And one of the things that really proved successful, that, that showed that these teams were successful, is that they were all in it together. Nobody was the, tr you know, I'm the leader and you must do what I say, but they all collaborated. They all had strengths and they all had unique viewpoints and unique input that they could make. And their input was valued and valuable. When we do that, when we have collaborative groups like that, where everybody feels like they're valued and valuable, you can make magic happen. I know that your mom kind of inspired your singing. What role did your dad play in your life choices? Ah, uh, that's a challenging question. How do I put this? How much am I supposed to say that this is an interesting question? I'm a child abuse survivor. My father, the police were at our house a lot. Let's put it that way. And when I said I learned, I started playing the violin when I was five years old, I did, but it wasn't my choice. He wanted to hear violin, piano duets. So my older sister played piano and I played violin and it was not my choice, right? It was not, it would not have been my instrument to choose, but it's what he chose. He was, how do I put this? I'll give you an example. My father used to put a piece of white paper in front of our faces and he would say, I am your father, and if I say this piece of paper is black, you will say, yes, dad, it's black. If I can give him any credit, 
is what he taught me is what not to do, <laughs> right? So he taught me the wrong ways to work with people. He taught me the wrong ways to interact and the wrong ways to show caring, right? In, and I'm sure somewhere in his mind, he was trying to do the right thing. I think, I think on some level, we're all doing the best we can at any one time, but his best was not good at all. So my third grade teacher, and this is this is the, the moment that I stopped being in touch with my father, that I stopped having anything to do with him. My third grade teacher, when I was already 11, 12 years old, they were moving, she and her husband were moving to an apartment and they had a dog and she asked me if I wanted the dog and I, yes. And I got my parents to agree and I would take care of the dog and all of that. And this was at a time when you didn't necessarily keep the dog in the house. You know, he was in the backyard and I lived right across the street. I lived right across the street from my middle school. So I would run home at lunch and, you know, play with him and then come back one day. And my father, my father beat us. He beat the dog. He was just, that's, I, you know, he's still alive, but I'm, I doubt he'll ever listen to this episode. If he takes any umbrage, I will point out police reports. So. So one day I came home from school and the dog was not in the yard and I went all over the neighborhood and scoured and he was nowhere to be found. And about 1130 that night, he was barking at the door and I let him in. And the next morning I went, okay, he got out of the backyard. I don't want to leave him in the backyard. And my father said, nope, he has to stay in the backyard. And when I came home from school that day, he was gone and he never came back. Many years later, I was 27. My father told me that the first day Sasha was the name of the dog that he disappeared was my father had taken him out into the woods and, you know, dropped him off somewhere. And the dog found his way back. And the second day he killed him. And that's why the dog never came back. So at at the moment, I don't know what drove my father to tell me, maybe guilt. I don't know. Something drove him to tell me. And I went and we're done. And that was the last time I talked to him. And that was almost 30 years ago. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, yeah, you could you could look him up if you wanted to. He ended up getting in the newspaper for something. He actually spent time in prison for something he didn't do. So the, the record was expunged. But his story, his case is actually taught at the University of Michigan School of Law. It's a crazy, whacked out story. And I don't tell it because it's not my story. I was not involved in it at all. But but I will say that he didn't do you know, he was found completely innocent of the thing that he went to prison for, but he did enough before that, that he never, you know, the police would come and in the seventies, the police came to your house and they'd go stop doing that and nothing else would happen. You know, this was not a time when people were taken seriously, women, especially your families were taken seriously when there was an abusive spouse. So it didn't happen. You know, they would come, they would say, stop doing that. And that would be it. They would not do substantive things back then. Now it's different. Now, of course, things are things are very different. But back then, it was not something that they were going to do anything about. He never had to face what he was doing to his family then. How was it for you when that hit the news? I will say that I found out from my cousin. You know, he called me on my cell and said, I don't know if you know, but your father's in prison. You should go see him. And I said, no, I was not interested in seeing him because I am not interested in seeing him. I am curious, like, and you don't have to answer this. What would you tell like another child or someone else that has experienced abuse, like childhood abuse? There are a couple of different things. First of all, it depends a lot on the situation. I used to do volunteer work with something called Safe House, which this is back in college. But what it is, is when there was a domestic abuse situation and almost always it was the man abusing the woman. Immediately, Ann Arbor had this law where immediately the man, if the woman called 911, immediately the man was taken to jail for the night. Right. That was the thing. And safe house volunteers would go with the police. Police would arrest the man. The safe house volunteers, our job was to provide a safe space, provide advocacy and provide the woman. And if she had children with her, the woman and the children, a place to stay for the night. So the message there was always safety first. Right. So anytime if somebody's going through something like that, like I'll, I'll give you an example. Many years ago, I tend to see red when I see abuse. So I'll get involved. And I was riding in a car with an old boyfriend and I we, we were at a red light and, and I look over and I see 
there's a man and a woman and he is in the driver's seat and he's hitting her. He's beating her at the red light. And I went, oh, I don't think so. And I got out of the car and I, I'm a martial artist. I'm a black belt. And I got out of the car and I started yelling at him thing, you know, get out of the car, you stop hitting her, you know, pick on someone your own size. And he, you know, he just kind of looked at me like, what? And I just, and I started kicking his car. I literally was like going to do whatever it took to get him to stop in the moment. And boy, did he stop. He took off. But then I called the police and I said, there's a man, he's abusing a woman. He's got a dented driver's side door, <laughs> you know, because in the moment, that's what you do. To me, that's what I do, I would say. I, I don't know that that's appropriate for everybody. That's what's appropriate for me because I that's a that's a hot button. That's a that that'll trigger me and I will go, I'm gonna stop that no matter what, right? I'm gonna stop the abuse no matter what. That's just and that's me. I do not advocate it for everybody. And in fact, when I've gotten involved in the police ended up coming, I've gotten read the riot act because I could have been killed and all and I and I'm like I'll be honest with you. Defending someone defenseless, that's a perfectly fine way for me to die. So I feel very strongly about that, that if if I can be of service to someone in that way, and if it happens to cost me my life, but I'm doing it for the right reasons, then okay. That is the result of being an abused child for me. Not everybody goes there and I do not advocate it at all. I'm just talking about myself. And so the thing is, as far as what I would say to a child, I would try to make sure the child is safe. First and foremost, try and make sure the child is safe. And I've done that before. I've I've sort of said to to parents who are who I've seen abusing their kids or hitting their kids, not abusing, but hitting, even though I think hitting is abuse, but okay. You've gotten angry enough to where you've lost control and you now want to hit your child. And that to me is the point. The second you hit your child, you're not in control anymore. Like that's that's the point at which you can't reason. You are not capable of reason. So for me, I'll go, you know what? We're going to sit right here, this child and I, you go for a walk. Just go, take five minutes, cool off. And I've done that before. And the person walked off and I get to talk with the child and sort of reassure them that everything's okay and find out how the child is. And is this something that happens a lot? Because there's a difference, you know, there's a difference between I sw swatted you on the bottom, which again, I do not advocate. But there's a difference between something like that and systemic abuse. There just is. I will call the police if I need to. I've called Child Protective Services if I need to. So my advice to somebody who is suffering abuse is there are nowadays Google. Google the places that you can get to if you need safety. House of Ruth is a phenomenal organization that's like Safe House. They provide shelter for especially women, women and children who need it. They provide services to help you get on your feet. They provide services to help you get clothes and, and, a, and a meal if, you, if that's what you need. And so Safe House, House of Ruth, lots of places like that exist. And they are their locations are hidden. You do not know where they are so that if there is an abusive partner, you know, you can be safe. You can find a safe space. And that's so important for usually, of course, almost always women who are the victims of this or the survivors of this. I'm there to hold space and see how I can help. And if it looks dangerous, then I call the cops. For children, making sure that they're safe and okay. And if it means calling Child Protective Services, if it means calling the police, then so be it. Because their safety comes first. Their health comes first. Their wellness comes first. What did those kids say to you? It varies. Some kids don't want to talk. You know, some kids are just like, shut up, leave me alone. And some kids go, I'm hurting. This hurts. What can you do besides that's and, and now I'm going to make sure you're not hurting anymore. We are a global village. The adults in the room have a responsibility to the children in the room, if you will, to make sure that they're cared for, even if it's not your child. I don't have any biological children. I couldn't have them. So so I don't have any. And I should say, that means that I can be an advocate for other children if that's what's necessary. If I can help, I want to help. There are other places, there are other ways that, that someone who's being abused can get to safety. And I, I, should pre I should have prefaced all this by saying I'm not affiliated with any of these places anymore. I've done volunteer work and I've been in, in those situations. So if their policies have somehow changed, do your research, right? This is, the, this is so important for all of us is that if you need help, so much of this has to be we're living in a world now where you can reach out for help. And if you feel too afraid to reach out for help, then Google, what are the things that I can do right now? How can I help myself? If I'm too afraid to reach out for somebody else to help me, is there a way that I can help myself? 
How did your and mom get help? How did your mom leave? She got the strength to kick him out. She didn't leave herself. She kicked him out. But it's weird because so I was 13, 14 years old when that happened and he refused to get a lawyer. So that meant that getting divorced would be tough. The judge wanted him to get a lawyer and he was like, no. And so they needed to drop the divorce papers. I don't talk about this very often, but what the heck, I'm here. So I wrote out their divorce agreement on lined paper from a notebook. I, I Their binding legal divorce agreement, I wrote by hand. No lawyer saw it. The judge looked at it and went, okay, if you agree. And my mom gave away a lot. To get divorced from him, she, she did not get alimony. We got almost no child support, but it was worth it to her because she wanted him gone. Wow, that's very brave. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's a remarkable woman. Aw, well, I so much appreciate you opening up about that. And I do feel like it's going to help people. I hope so. I never felt helpless. And that's the thing. I think if we feel helpless, that is the worst to me, feeling helpless. I never felt helpless. I somehow developed the ability to talk him down from rages and, and at a young age, at seven, eight, nine years old. And so, so I never felt helpless. And I started studying the martial arts and I never felt helpless then either. So I feel like if we can do things to help ourselves feel powerful and not helpless, then we can figure out innovative ways to get help, to get free, to get healed. That's so important that healing is something that, that you owe to yourself. If you are a survivor of abuse, of domestic abuse, of child abuse, sexual abuse, you are entitled to heal from that. You deserve to be whole and healthy. And so that is paramount. And that's something a lot of people don't believe. They don't yet know that they deserve to, to heal. They deserve to be healthy and to be whole and to feel like they deserve to be here. Because that's one of the things that it erodes from you is your feeling of being entitled to be alive. And you are. If you have been abused, if you have been attacked or hurt, you absolutely are entitled to be alive. You absolutely deserve to heal. You absolutely deserve to be whole and healthy and live a life where you thrive. You just deserve it. That is so powerful. Wow. I felt that majorly. That is so good. That is such an empowering message. My mom tells the story. I do not remember this. I think I was channeling something. I do not remember this, but she tells a story where I was, I think, eight years old. And he, I was standing at the bottom of the steps of our apartment, two floors, the bedrooms were upstairs. And he was upstairs and he was just going to beat the crap out of either my mother or my, my sister. I don't remember. Probably my sister. Apparently, I stood at the bottom of the steps and quite calmly started talking about the appropriate role of a father that a father is meant to protect and to guide and to care for and to be there for his children in a way that helps them feel like they can grow. Like all that my mother says that what he did is he stopped his rampage, he turned, he looked at me, his mouth went, and he listened to everything I had to say. And then he walked into their bedroom and he closed the door. And that was it. And she says it, it boggled everybody. We did not know what the heck was going on. Here's this eight-year-old saying this stuff. And it was because I was reading Nancy Drew books. And Carson Drew was this supportive, caring, protective, loving father. And I went, oh, that's what a father is supposed to be like. So I apparently channeled that and just told him. I don't remember doing it, but apparently that's what I did. <laughs> I love that. And I'm a fan of Nancy Drew too. <laughs> Yay. Nancy Drew rocks. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's truly incredible. Incredible. I love that you pulled that out of your sleeve. <laughs> Who knew, right? I, I had no idea that could even happen. Wow. Thank you. This has been truly special. I love this. My dad's going to love this too. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. Well, I am going to let you promote away all of the things. Yeah, sure. So if you want to find me and see, for example, my art, my art project, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Isolda T, I-Z-O-L-D-A-T, just about everywhere except Facebook. That's Isolda.Trachtenberg. But everything else is at Isolda T, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. My website is Isolda T. So if you want to know more about the three C's and how to get 
innovative and think creatively so that you can improve your life and your work. You can find all that information there about all my workshops and all of that. And interestingly, if you want to, oh, if you want to know more about public speaking, my most recent book is Speak From Within. It's all about how to engage and motivate and, and inspire audiences and get over a public speaking phobia, which is, I used to have one. I had a public speaking phobia when I was younger and not that you can tell. I know nowadays I'm right out there with everything. But I used to be uh, terrified of speaking in public, not singing in public, but speaking in public. That's out there as part of my website and talking about Nancy Drew's fun because this summer, early or late spring, I should say, my first mystery novel is going to come out. So speaking of Nancy Drew, I'm writing a mystery novel about a woman born in Moldova, where I was born, who is a professional tarot card reader who works with the D.C. police to solve crimes. And when somebody kills somebody and leaves them in the in the sort of tableau of one of her tarot cards, they bring her in to see what's going on and to try and catch the killer before he strikes again. So it's going to be oh, super I fun. I want to read that. I love <laughs> mysteries. I still do. Oh my God. Wow. Is there anything that you don't do? <laughs> I can't run more than about 10 feet. <laughs> This has been an absolute pleasure. I look forward to connecting with you more. I'm so glad we yeah, did this. Yeah, me too. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. What did you think of the innovative Isolda? I thought that she was an unbelievable talent. I heard her sing. I heard her speak beautifully other languages. But the way she speaks English, you couldn't even tell that there's any accent whatsoever. And she's traveled all over the world and to so many different countries and really understands human nature of that vast amount of people. Isn't that really the type of education that we all wish that we could have, where we could travel and learn how people live all over the world in their backyard, be able to speak their language and sing their language and understand their customs? Amazing. Remarkable. She's so creative. And isn't that really a a sign of tremendous intelligence when someone can speak fluently so many different languages? My grandfather, Israel Bihar, I think also could speak fluently eight different languages. And that is really a tremendous sign of intelligence when you can understand and be able to speak native tongue of so many different countries and understanding their ways and their customs. It's just amazing. It's just fantastic. And then you get the twist that you were able to uncover is that she wants to be creative. She wants to be compassionate for people. She wants people to be able to also reach for the stars and be the best that they can be. And encouragement of the Better Call Daddy show is to try to see what type of legacy she's carrying on of her family as well. She bluntly tells you that my father did everything wrong, and I'm here to try to correct and do everything right and get everyone else on a positive light and to get everybody else to be in a creative mode and at the same time to be able to communicate and understand people and show some compassion for the people that you're working with and for what you're trying to accomplish. took me as a total shock that her destiny is to be able to reverse the way she was treated and really give you a different story on really how a father or a family figure is supposed to be. Give her a lot of credit for that. Certainly shocked the hell out of me. Yeah, that was a whirlwind there. I mean, I'm reading the description of her profile and she says she's into ethical innovation. She's a creative living maven, a podcaster, an author, a singer, a coach. She worked at NASA. She's remarkable. And able to overcome what her father example was. How remarkable is that? That she used that instead of feeling sorry for herself, used it as a motivation to do better, to be the best that she can be and make everyone around her better as well. Not only does she have natural abilities and talent, she has a lot of wisdom and a lot of cultural depth experience that she should share with whoever will listen to her, because you will get a valuable lesson. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, 
Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 